0: This awesome podcast is now approved by Spotify. So, if you'd rather tune into our episodes via the Spotify app, then just go ahead and search for Millionaire
1: Interviews. Told my wife, we're not going to starve, but we're going to get right up to the line. I can remember there were days I cold called, called 100 shops. We're not interested, don't call back. The dealers that said, don't call us back, started calling. We've grown pretty rapidly. We closed last year at 3200000 million. We'll close this year around $4.4 million. My name is Luther Ciphers. I'm the president of Yak Attack and CEO of Bonafide Kayaks. I live in Amelia, Virginia. Grew up out here. Been here pretty much my whole life. Yeah, that's about it.
0: How'd you get into the kayak business?
1: Well, it started with being a participant in the sport. Me and a friend of mine were doing some kayak fishing and started fishing for striper under bridge lights and needed a light. The area we were fishing in also had a lot of power boats. So we wanted a 360 degree light to keep us from getting run over and wanted something that you had good battery life and good visibility. So started with a homemade job. We made a little product. Both of us were engineers. We worked together for years. But it was, you know, kind of a crude DIY kind of project. But a lot of people responded to it, started asking if they could buy one. So we decided to start a little business. Yak was actually my screen name on one of the kayak fishing forums, the local kayak fishing club. So, you know, we labored over a name for about fifteen minutes and Bob was like, Well, I just use Yak So that's kind of how it started. And then From there, it just kind of snowballed. You know, it was intended to be a hobby business, but the sport was growing. We rapidly identified a number of voids in the product offerings that were out there. So, you know, we just kept adding one product at a time, grew it organically, you know, just a lot of sweat equity and rolling everything back over into the company and just kept going. Did
0: you have a different job on the side? And this, you said this was side business.
1: Yeah. So I was at the time I was, I had a consulting company. So I did design work for a number of different types of companies, everything from products to industrial apparatus to machines. So I, it was nice because I was able to kind of ramp that company down as I ramped Yak up. And then finally, and I guess it was around 2012 or 2013, I made the leap and uh shut down the consulting company and went full time.
0: Do you want to walk us to the beginning? I guess you said you've lived there your area your whole life. Which what means in Burkeville, Virginia?
1: Yeah, so Burkeville is about fifteen or twenty minutes from Amelia County. Amelia County is where I grew up. I've lived in the, you know, in the country my whole life. I enjoy that that kind of living, a little drive to work is good for me. It gives me time to think on the way home and to unwind or think on the way to work and unwind on the way home. So the the property I live on, actually, it used to be family land years ago. And my wife and I built a house in 2000, bought some property from my grandmother, built a house out there in 2000 and been there ever since. If you don't mind, why don't we just jump from high school and then work your way up to where we are today? Okay. So I was actually homeschooled and from third grade after third grade. So from fourth grade on, I was homeschooled and Actually left home when I was 18 before I finished homeschool. So I I may be the only homeschool dropout. You know, <laughs> I went to work at a manufacturing company, the entry level position, putting sheet pans into an oven to cure carbon brushes. And from there, just you know, worked hard, kind of caught the attention of some people there, and started to get some different opportunities. Ultimately, they ended up sending me to school in in the town that I was working in. I went to Longwood College and studied physics. Got Say halfway through that program, and by then I had a I had a budding engineering career started. I was designing robotics and assembly equipment for the automotive industry, and had a family. And that time decided that the best way to further my career was to focus on the work rather than um, furthering the formal education of course quite a education is acquired on the job and that was the route I chose to go and that worked out well from there ended up working for a company that actually sold us in the automotive industry the company that sold us the 3D software that we were using i had dabbled for a bit in some uh, so, writing some code to automate different products And ended up getting a job writing automation software for engineering, basically add-ons for engineering software. Did that for a couple of years. And shortly after that is when I went out on my own with a consulting company and ended up here.
0: was the consulting company? And can you tell us how you started that?
1: Yeah, it was was called Cypher Solutions. Um, I'd say I've had the entrepreneurial itch for some time. And I was working doing probably 80% software, 20% mechanical design for this other company. And just wanted to do my own thing. I had run the software side of that business for a couple of years. Had there was a guy who had left kind of a complicated situation. A guy had left. I was really there kind of apprenticing, learning this stuff, but he left and left me kind of holding the bag. And my boss asked me, can you just wind this thing down? Get the customers happy. Let's get rid of these projects and wind this down. But it turned out that in the process of winding down the projects, we created some really happy customers. So for a couple of years, I grew that business and ran it as almost an independent business unit and really liked that. So after, you know, that whole thing, I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'd like to do it for myself. You know, I'd like to create something that's not only can I make the decisions that I would like to make, but also that I can work as hard as I want to. I can be as creative as I want to. I can take the risks that I feel like are worth taking and be the either the benefactor or reap the consequences of those decisions. So that's when I went out on my own. I had a lot of contacts in industrial automation's side of the world and pretty easy to get projects. I was very fortunate in that. I probably turned down more than I took. But I realized pretty quickly that when you're in a consulting business, it's difficult to duplicate yourself. Even if you hire another engineer or something like that, people are often hiring a reputation and they want you to do their work. They don't want you to accept the PO and then hand it to someone else within the organization. So I knew there was a way to scale that, but that it was going to be a more difficult process. So I just, I think in the back of my mind, I always kind of kept my eyes peeled, hoping for a different kind of opportunity. And interestingly enough, the one that came along was the one that, it wasn't really planned or intended to be it, but definitely turned out to be.
0: What would you do as a consulting business? Because I mean, there's a lot of different types of consulting. Like after you started your own business, do you save up X amount of dollars and then you just started calling these people and what were you doing exactly?
1: I had a company that they would broker a lot of the contracts for me. So they had an engineering services company. People would call them and say, for example, one of the projects I did was working on new type of shoe for women. You know, so they said, we have this project and we need an engineer. And they sometimes would do it in-house, sometimes they would match the customer with independent contractors. And I was one of those independent contractors. So product design like that, you know, sensors and things like that for industrial applications. The last big project that I did was actually a tow truck for a company out in Norfolk called Dynamic Towing. Worked with Anthony Gentile out there and developed their Fusion Wrecker which is actually now used in several of the, I mean, all over the country, but also it's the official tow truck of several of the NASCAR tracks.
0: It was basically just you for how long?
1: Yeah, it was me. Uh, I guess that was about from the time I started. And how old were you when you started it? About 31. Yeah, it was for about, I guess, five years, probably a couple of years before I started Yak Attack, and then three years or so, kind of ramping that down as I ramped. Yak Attack up. Basically, what I did is the consulting company, if I worked 40 or 60 or whatever hours a week, it paid well for what our needs were at home. So I began to just reduce that schedule while pouring every waking hour I could into Yak Attack. Around 2010 is when I decided that Yak Attack could really be something. Um, We started January of 2009, but about mid-2010, it was becoming evident that you know, it still had to grow a lot to provide a living, but that it had the potential to do that. So I just started slowly reducing, you know, I, I told my wife the that year we made the leap. I said, you know, it's going to be controlled starvation. So we're not going to starve, but we're going to get right up to the line because that's what it's going to take to put the effort I need to get this thing off the runway. And that's what we did. You know, every every dollar we had that we could get our hands on, you know, we it got reallocated and we just you know, worked really hard, worked a lot of hours. And it took about, you know, for 2010, I think I started drawing a paycheck from it in 2013. So over over that time, I just slowly wound down the consulting company until I finally flipped the switch. Appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah, favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh yeah? why's that? So I graduated in 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things of thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but twelve per month is like nothing.
0: Was your uh, wife ever scared? I mean, did you have kids at that point? Can you tell us the challenges of that?
1: Yeah, we had a family. I mean, we had three kids. They were... I guess the youngest one at that time was probably maybe six years old, the oldest 12 or 13 or so. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were moments of, boy, I hope you're right. But she had seen me grow my career over the years. You know, I had a high level of confidence that this was going to be a good, I'm not going to call it a gamble, but a good calculated risk. So I think, I don't think there was ever a lot of doubt that I was going to provide and we were going to have what we needed. It was just uncomfortable for a couple of years there. Can you tell us about the
0: early years, like I said, transitioning into Yak Attack about what you did to start getting this going?
1: Yeah. So, you know, again, when we started, it was really going to be a hobby business. I remember calling their vendor that we were buying the little lights from to assemble into this light pole. And he was trying to figure out what to charge me. And So of course, we were looking for some volume pricing. So he asked me how many we thought we could sell. And I didn't want to sandbag, but also didn't want to blow smoke at the guy. So I was like, well, I I think we could probably sell 100 of these a year. And at the time, that felt like a a little bit of a tall order, but I thought it was possible. Um, That first year, we ended up selling 700, which you know, it was a lot more than we expected, but it still only generated, I think it was about $19,000 in revenue. So then it was just working weekends, you know, in my buddy's basement, putting these things together, everything to build them was stuff that you could get at, at Lowe's or Home Depot, you know, miter saw and a cordless drill and stuff like that, a little router. But after that first year, I looked at it, and had identified some improvements. So we said, well, let's take the few thousand dollars that we made on that and put it into tooling and tool up a, a little more commercial version of this. So that's when we created a product called the Visi Carbon Pro, which is still our flagship product. Basically it's a light pole, four feet tall. It breaks down kind of like a tent pole. It's got a bungee running through it. We've patented that design. So we built that and that just took off, you know. So we went from nineteen thousand to sixty thousand dollars and you know, made a little bit of money on that. And that's how it was for all of those first years. It was identifying a new product, scraping together whatever we could a free cash or if you know i had an extra 100 bucks in the bank or whatever and tooling up a new product and it's a little nerve-wracking doing that because especially when you don't know that much about business which at the time i knew something about helping to run someone else's business but really understanding cash flow and understanding growth and the cost of growth and what it means to be profitable but not have any money coming out the other end of the pipe when you're growing this hyper growth you know 3 400% per year that took me a while you know i remember thinking well if we're making a 20% margin. If we can get to half a million dollars in sales, I can at least start taking a small salary. And yeah, we got to half a million dollars in sales. We're making a decent margin on paper, but there was no cash coming out the other end because when you're growing like that, you're constantly fueling inventory and you know, buying a new piece of equipment or some new fixturing. Or and, and when you're that small, I mean, any of those expenses is a huge expense. So About mid-2010, my buddy who I kind of started this with, he he moved on. We were working pretty hard by that time and and not getting paid. He had a, a good paying job and other places he wanted to devote his time. So he moved on and... At that point, you know, I decided, well, probably turn this into a full-time business and started the process of, like I said, just putting every dime and every waking hour into it. In 2012, we moved into a small building, moved out of our garage. By then, we had moved to our garage from his basement, moved into a small building in Farmville, Virginia. I remember going in there, it was 3,000 square feet, and it was a big, big move for us, I mean, going from the garage. So 300 to 3,000, something like that yeah 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 about about that so I walked in and the landlord was there and the building had been shuttered for a while and I said look we like the building but we don't need 3,000 square feet and I'm concerned about cost of it so can we like can we split it in half can we get 1500 square feet and then grow into the rest of it as we need it I think within a year we would need the rest of it and he kind of laughed and he said well how about you just take the whole thing for the same price so yeah, i think he saw something there that's give these guys a chance to get started but what was interesting is i remember my primary concern was at that point needed to set up a daily ups pickup and i was, and i remember thinking when we were in there that first day staring at the you know the empty floor and the empty walls saying what are we going to do like how do we notify ups of the days we're not going to be here cuz keep in mind at that point it was still part time business and from you know, a week later, we moved all of our stuff over. We did that on a couple of truck and trailer loads. And there was never a day after that that we weren't there. By the time we got the shop set up, the orders were ramping up for the season. And it just, that's how it's been ever since. You know, we grew out of that place within a year and a half, moved to another place in a, the town I'm in now, Burkeville, rented a small piece of this building. And over the next two or three years, we, slowly took over more and more space, eventually purchased the property. And now we're getting ready to build. Now we're in right at 20,000 square feet and we're getting ready to add a uh, 12,000 square foot uh, building.
0: Yeah, no, there's some great stories. I mean, especially in the beginning years, but I don't want to overlook the partnership thing. Was that a good friend of yours? Can you tell us how that went down? I mean, did was it like 50-50 equity and then he went off?
1: What it really was, we had some understanding outside of the documents. I basically started an LLC. He wanted to come in on it. The plan was if we ever turn it into a real business to, to formalize that. But no, it was much less than that. I, I put all the money into it, which wasn't a lot, but put it all into it and, and did the majority of the work. He was helping, but he, we ne- it never got to that point before we could ever get to the point that it was anything because the problem with once you have, you know, you got a 70, 30 split or a 50, 50 split. Well, then when the company needs a thousand bucks, that's how that, <laughs> that's how the money goes in. So before it ever got to the point that we could say this thing's on its own two feet, let's execute an agreement. He just, he just didn't, you know, didn't want to do it. it. It's not easy working, you know, 12 hours a day and then coming home and having a, Whole pile of product in your basement that needs to be assembled and uh, not getting paid for it, just trying to you know get something off the ground. It's not definitely not for everybody.
0: Yeah, no, and I can see that. I mean, especially if you have kids and if you're making a salary. So, I mean, I just wondered, I guess personally, was it, was he a friend? Or was it easy to
1: dissolve that? Yeah, I mean, it was his idea, you know? So, and, and even though I had put all the finances in, you know, I sat down and looked at the revenue we were making and the GP we were making and the percentages that we had discussed, and he got, you know, he got his share out of it, even, even though we hadn't formalized it. So, no, we're, we're still best friends. He works here now. He, he works. The company today.
0: Nice. Well, let's talk about how were you selling those products. Were you selling those online in the beginning? I guess before you moved to that warehouse, and how did you know what to do in order to do that?
1: So we started with yeah. We put a really it was a terrible little website together. You know, it looked like a 1994 website, but we started with that just to get something where people could go make a purchase. But you know, it was cold calling independent specialty retailers. We had one that we were buying all of our stuff from. You remember we were participants in this sport. So we knew some people, we knew a couple of shops and they were our first Appomattox River Company in Farmville, Virginia. They were our first customer. And after that, it was just, you know, Google kayak fishing supplies, kayak fishing outfitter. And then by this state name, by that state name, I started a spreadsheet and I just, you know, every time I found one, I plugged their name into the spreadsheet phone number, primary contact if I could find it and begin a cold call list. And I mean, for those first few months, I mean, I, I, I can remember there were days I, I cold called, you know, hundred shops and out of a hundred shops, we would pick up maybe one or two. And it was funny because a lot of those shops would say, because I guess they get solicited quite a bit, you know, so they would say, first off, once they realize you're not a telemarketer, they're a little bit, I guess, nicer, but they're very busy and they would say you know, look, call during our buying season, which is the fall, you know, or a lot of times it would be don't call back. We're not interested. Don't call back. So I would mark all this stuff on the spreadsheet and the ones that I hadn't talked to someone or they hadn't told me, leave us alone. (laughs) I, I would keep calling them. And, you know, we picked up some, most said, don't call us back. But what happened was, people started using the product, we started donating a lot of product to kayak fishing tournaments because we knew that it was the kind of product that once people used it, they wanted it, you know, or once they saw it, put their hands on it, they would want it. It was a product that could speak for itself. So we, we did a lot of that. That's where a lot of our quote unquote marketing dollars was into donating product and just get it into the, the hands of the opinion makers, the influencers in the sport. And, you know, we always told everybody from day one, all we ask is an objective review. We're not asking for a positive one, just an objective one, but it was a great product. It was much better than anything that had been put on the market. So it got really good reviews. And I would say by the third year, the dealers that said, don't call us back started calling. And by the fourth or fifth year, I mean, I remember going through that spreadsheet just in a nostalgic kind of way. And the only shops that I saw that we didn't have were a couple that had went out of business. And now we're in every pretty much every independent specialty paddle sports shop in the country that sell that caters to kayak fishermen which is now that's where everybody's focus is it's the fastest growing paddle sports sector it's also the fastest growing fishing sector so yeah it, it took a lot of hard work it took a lot of rejections but I was always kind of was always respectful of people's time I was never pushy even to this day I remember when I was working in uh, this engineering company engineer software company you know to make some extra money on the side I had some friends that had a business is that basically you would do a home inspection and then you would try to sell them the the upgrade for their home and they were like uh's oh, you know if you want to earn some extra money you're right there in town you can do it after work it's a 20 minute inspection you know if you if you make a sale it can be two three four hundred bucks each time so I did that for a couple of months and I sold one so I remember thinking of all the skill sets that I may be able to, to develop sales is not one of them but the reality is most of the people whose homes I visited didn't need the upgrade they didn't need it And this was a crawl space thing to, for when you have moisture in your crawl space and stuff like that. So what I really, in hindsight now, what I really learned was that I couldn't sell something that I didn't believe in or that I didn't, it, it wasn't that I didn't believe in the product, but if I didn't believe the customer needed it, I was a terrible salesman. So that was my biggest concern when we really started going with this was, especially after all those rejections is, you know, I need somebody who knows how to sell stuff, but you know, little by little people started responding. You know, we started going to shows when we, Got to shows, you know, people just completely responded to the product and the message and Looking back, I'd say one of our strongest suits today is an ability to sell, but it's not in the typical structured sales approach kind of way. It's in the speaking directly to the consumer, speaking directly to their needs, understanding their needs and putting the right product in front of them. And when you do that and when you believe in the product that you're putting in front of them, it's easy to be passionate about it. And then when you're, once you're passionate about it and you fully believe every word you're saying and you know it's in the consumer's best interest to buy your product, that comes through. And I'd say even still today that's our that's our sales approach is we just tell the truth. So if we want to do that, that means we have to create products that benefit from the truth.
0: How did it feel when those people were calling you back that you had called and they told you to not call back anymore? Was there part of something that wanted you to be like do you remember me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it told you so. Yeah. Um... <laughs> no, I mean I think I always knew they needed it, right? but I could understand we were an unknown quantity, you know, so I could understand and they were busy and these shops, they, they're so busy during the peak season. So, and, and at the time I didn't understand the seasonal cycle well enough, even though looking back, they were telling me call in the off season, basically that's when we do our buying I, to me, I'm like nobody's using the product then. So I was trying to do all this in the middle of the season. Right. So, you know, now I realized that I was catching them at a bad time. I think the feeling more than anything was, okay, we're, we're, we're beginning to establish credibility. People are starting to know who we are. And I always knew that if we could ever establish that, I had figured out by then there were a lot of problems that could be solved in the sport. There are a lot of solutions that could be created. And I was confident in our ability to create the right ones, ones that people would respond to. We just needed people to give us a chance. And it, there was a sigh of relief from that standpoint of, okay, you know, we're here. We're credible force. And now we've got a platform on which we can continue to develop the the product line.
0: Were you only really selling the light thing or did you have multiple products that you're trying to sell them
1: all at once? So in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, we had the lights. Two thousand nine was the original Visi Pole, which was essentially a PVC pipe with a light glued in the end of it. Two thousand ten we did the Visi Carbon Pro, which was the collapsible one. Maybe late two thousand ten, early two thousand eleven, we came out with a little mount called a mighty mount. And then we came out with a method of attaching accessories to track systems. There was a couple of companies out there that put these track systems on their kayaks to attach gear to. But there was no good way to do it. The way they would do it is they would slide a basically a nut into the track, put the accessory on it and run a screw down into the nut to tighten it on. The problem with that is that number one, it required tools. Number two, it required the exact right length hardware because if the bolt was too long, it would bottom out in the track and it would never tighten up. So people who were using them or trying to use them were carrying around hardware kit because in wrenches because that was the only way to use them. So we figured Figured out. Well, if we turn that upside down and we make a T-bolt that'll fit into the track, let the thread stick up, and then all of the accessories that we develop just thread those accessories, then you can essentially turn the accessory, rotate it to tighten it down to the track. You never have to worry about the length of the thread because it's threaded up into the bottom of the device, not not sticking down into the track. So this T-bolt attachment method we came out with, I think, in 2011, the Mighty Mount was a little small mount that you could use the same t-bolt attachments with and then from there it was a whole slew of things that would attach to these tracks using this method crate for organizing year polling a push pole stakeout pole stakeout pole is to kind of anchor you in the mud you jam it down to the mud and tie rope to it to keep from drifting a push pole you basically use to pull along when you're standing up and and just moving around in shallow water so it was all of those things you know in fact i'd say that by 2014 or so we had and this is something that's important for any budding entrepreneur to understand if if they're in a product based or potentially even service-based business is in the beginning you're starving for opportunity. You know, you've got all this energy, you just know you can make it happen, but you're starving for opportunity. So when you see an opportunity, you grab it, you develop it, and and then you wait for the next one. And then you grab it, you develop it, you wait for the next one. What happens once you get once that pump is primed, the opportunities start coming at you a lot faster. Oh, well, we like this product, but it'd be nice if it had a yellow flag. Okay, well, we'll make one with a yellow flag. Well, it'd be nice if it was an extra foot long. Okay, well, we'll make an extra foot long one. And before you know it, you've got really six or seven products and 200 SKUs. So that was about the time that we had to learn to let some opportunities go. You know, we don't need to capitalize on every opportunity. We need to capitalize on the right opportunities. If someone once told me, he said in, in my mind's eye, I see opportunities like, you know, they're just flying past my head and I'm just standing there and they're all coming. And he said, the challenge is number one, they're moving pretty fast. If you don't grab them, you uh, you're gonna miss them. But number two, you've got to be able to evaluate the right ones, and you got to be able to grab it quickly. Because if you're grabbing, if you're focused on grabbing the wrong one, the big one might go right by you. And if you you know, if you don't act quickly, it's going to go right by you. So the, the challenge of an entrepreneur is to rapidly identify the right opportunities and then be decisive. You grab a hold of it and you go. And sometimes you have to be just as decisive to let it go. So somewhere around those middle years, we began to figure all of that out. And now we're on the path, I'd say, of refining the product line, really filling out the categories, not having too many options, having something that dealers can sell and service and that consumers can understand. And that's produced some good fruit for us it's really insightful so as soon as you said you were setting up the patreon it was just like yeah i'll help this guy you know i take a lot of value from it you know it's as simple as that
0: yeah i really appreciate that man well i was gonna say have you checked out our newest patreon episode
1: yeah i was just like oh well i'm in the car i'll just listen to it whatever But i'm not getting anything out of this and then you're like wow i'm not that naive or anything but it really did open your eyes
0: at what point did you learn that and how were you able to figure out, you know, was it just based on talking to people that you're like, hey, we need to start cutting down on the products that we're doing with all these SKUs?
1: Yeah, it was really cutting down on the options. mm mm-hmm. We got feedback, you know, and for years we had gotten the feedback from dealers, but consumers were still asking for it. So it, we were a little slow to learn, but eventually we just learned it was difficult to service. It's just, it was a lot of things. Yeah, you know, we had a lot of products that we would sell literally like 20 a year. Uh, you can't even probably justify the engineering time to create a set of drawings and put a production process in place for that, uh, even if it's a simple drilling fixture or something like that. So I'd say we learned slowly. <laughs> it took took longer than it should have but but eventually eventually figured it out. It doesn't mean that we don't want some options and a good solid product offering. It's just, you just have to be conscious of what opportunities you're developing and make sure there's a long-term plan associated with that.
0: Could you tell us about some of the other challenges you might've had like in the early days or throughout? Because it seems like, It's been slow and constantly growing. I mean, has there ever been any issues
1: where you're like, hey, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to make it? There haven't been any times that I thought we weren't going to make it. There were the first several years were hyper growth, you know, 300, 400% growth. Cash was always a concern. We grew the company organically. So we never took any investment or debt. Um, I remember we got a big, well, at the time, what was a big order from a distributor, and didn't have enough cash to get the materials to fill it. I remember getting a a loan from my dad for uh, I think it was ten thousand dollars in ninety days, and that was a big move. You know, it's like, boy, now we're in debt. But it was funding a PO. You know, I think we paid it back in sixty or less. But I'd say that was the biggest challenge was the the cash thing, you know, not going to the banks, not I kind of had a chip on my shoulder about um if we can't make it on our own, we probably shouldn't be doing this. Uh, I've learned since then that especially when there's growth, there's solid growth. There's a difference between gambling and making decisions to leverage resources. A very two very different things. So since then I think we know how to use debt if we need to or whatever we need to wisely, but at the time I was I was really concerned about creating a mess, you know. So not only am I start almost starving the family for resources, but then on top of that, if this thing fails, I'm gonna have a big mountain of debt to deal with. So it, growing it organically was the biggest challenge. You know, having the cash to to do that, but it forced us to be very disciplined, you know, about how we spend, about how we grow. I'd say it put us in a position of well, let, let me back up. There's a thing we like to say around here that Innovation starts where conventional options end. And when you put yourself in a position of not having resources, it's pretty amazing what you can come up with. And we we learned a lot of things about how to launch products that, for example, how to launch products that may not be profitable because we didn't want to make the investment to make them profitable, but where we didn't lose money on them. And then if those products took in the marketplace if the market accepted them, we knew then we could go back and make them profitable because if it never reaches volume, who cares how much percentage it makes it's, there's no there 's no real money there, and if it does reach volume, you can afford to make the investment so w- One of the things that we say here at Yakutak is that innovation starts where conventional options end, and when you put yourself in a position of not having resources, you can be pretty creative and we developed a lot of kind of internal processes and and approaches to doing things that enabled us to do them on a budget without ever cutting a corner. I mean, we have a reputation for having really high quality, well thought out products. We don't have a reputation for cutting corners because we don't, but there's a way to do, kind of do all of the above. You just have to be really careful about how you do it. One of the things we would do from time to time is we would launch a product that it may not be profitable in the beginning because the investment to make it profitable was a was a risk. We had another way that we we could make it that maybe more labor intensive or whatever but that would give us the ability to prove the product out make sure the marketplace is going to accept it before making the investment now, i've seen a lot of entrepreneurs go out they have an idea that's completely untested they or or their ability to sell it or service it or whatever is untested they they go out there they they find some capital they spend all this money on, well, you know, to make the numbers work in the business plan, we're going to need to invest $35,000 in tooling and, you know, we're going to have to spend $20,000 on trade shows and we need a $40,000 website. And, you know, they do all this stuff and spend all this money and it's all really exciting. And then they flip the switch and find out that there's something they missed in the product that the consumers don't react as well as they hoped or some other deficiency. I've watched companies go out of business doing that. And I've actually bought companies, bought their assets for companies. That have done that. So, you know, our approach was let's make sure this thing's gonna fly. Let's be really careful. And when you're spending your own money and you don't have a lot of it to spend, uh, I think that forces the, that kind of discipline. And it, and it turned out to be a, a real strength for us, which. I think it's a life lesson. The best comes out of people. People rise to their maximum potential when their choice is between survival or not surviving. And I'd, I'd say that time, it really squeezed a lot of juice out of us. You know, it really got us to perform at our very, very maximum of what we could possibly achieve. And That even follows us today. Now resources aren't as thin. We have equipment and we have things and we can make investments and we can take some capital risks that we couldn't take before. But a lot of the discipline has stuck with us. Could you
0: tell us where you're at today, as far as like revenues and employees?
1: Actually, the exact I've been. This is show season for us, so for the last three or four weeks, I've been doing that. Uh, and plus, I have another company now called Bonafide Kayaks. It's a new kayak company, so I don't have the exact employee count, but it's it's in a neighborhood of forty, I think, now that we have here at Yak Attack. From that nineteen thousand dollars to sixty thousand dollars, you know, we've grown pretty rapidly. We just got the notification. This is our third year consecutive year on the Inc. Five Thousand. We closed last year at 3.2 million. We'll close this year around 4.4 million.
0: That's what I wanted to transition into. You talked about bonafide kayaks, and can you tell us? why you started that? What's the
1: difference? Yak Attack manufactures accessories for the kayak fishing industry. Bonafide manufactures kayaks. And early on, there was a decision to be made about, well, do we want to make a Yak Attack kayak or do we want to start a new company? But one of the dynamics with Yak Attack is we have a lot of partners in the industry, a lot of OEM partners. And we decided that building a Yak Attack kayak would be detrimental to those relationships and also just didn't feel right. So we said, if we're going to do this... It's going to have to be an independent company with an independent team. And that's the way we did it. We want Yak Attack to serve the entire industry. As soon as it becomes a kayak manufacturer, then how do you do that? You know, you don't see a lot of people putting Ford parts on a Chevrolet. Right. So we wanted to keep the independent status of Yak Attack, but... Yeah, you know, saw an opportunity to build a fishing kayak. There's a lot of good fishing kayaks out there. It's a rapidly innovating market, but we we saw an opportunity maybe to just do it the way that we had done things in the past. Is just you know it's not always the big things. A lot of times it's the simple things being just really well executed, really well thought out, and so that's what we set out to do. I hired a team that that had experience in kayak design, and last November we started that process. We launched. The first bona fide kayak at the Icast show in July, uh, which is the Orlando show we were talking about, got an incredible response. I mean, people just absolutely ate it up. You know, they, I think it sells itself on features. When you see the features, you see the deck layout, you know, the high, super high seating position, you know, a lot of those things, people say, okay, this is something I could, I could really appreciate. But then there's another level of appreciation when you paddle it for a boat that's so incredibly stable. It paddles really, really well that's a trade-off normally. you know, If you get good stability, you're going to have a boat that's pretty sluggish in the water because generally you get stability by making it wider. But we, we were able to did a lot of research and development on hull design, tested a lot of things, measured a lot of things. We were able to get a really unique hull that offers some really unique performance characteristics. And then the third step of falling in love with this boat is fishing out because when you go to lay a rod down and it, there's just a place to put it. that's exactly there. It just makes sense. Or you gotta stand up and the the super high seating makes that really easy. Or you spend, you know, three or four days fishing eight or ten hours a day and you don't have any back fatigue, you know, because because of the ergonomics, you know, all of those things together have really propelled this thing off to a really rapid start. We've done much better than we anticipated in our first two shows and the Uncertainty there, I think, is gone now. We just have to execute, get the product out on time, and make sure we can make enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking
0: at it right now on the website the SS107 and SS127. Yeah, that's right. You talked about a few of things that were different. Is there anything else? And how does it like compare in price? Like, I think it's kind of interesting that you started this. So I want to see what your vision is and
1: how you kind of went through it. I, I'd say the biggest difference in that kayak and other kayaks on the market is is the hull, the balance and performance. The other thing is just the it's the little things. It's the execution on the deck, you know, of kind of having things where you need them. Some little smart things. That big front hatch that you see there, when you're out on the water, you want to you want to open that hatch from the cockpit side, but when you're stowing rods inside of it for transport, which people do a lot, you kind of would like to open it from the other side. So, normally you make a choice, and that's the one you live with. I've seen ones where the hatch just is held on with bungees. You take the bungees off and just throw it out of the way, so it's completely open. We made this one where the hatch hinges on both ends, so we designed these releasable hinges, so you can you can hinge it from either side. You know, it's a simple thing, but when you're using it out in the field, it's just it's just really really nice. And there's a lot of I'd say bow stern on that kayak. There's a lot of little things like that complete an experience that is a pretty significant experience but any one of those little things isn't so big if, if that makes any sense it's the it's the sum of all the parts that makes it very unique and that people are responding to uh, As far as price point, we're in the I'd say we're in the upper crust of the premium tier uh, may, maybe not the most expensive in its class, but definitely not the least expensive either We chose. You know, quality and features over, you know, we, we're building a premium brand. So that, that's, that's where we chose to go. Where are you getting
0: this manufacturing? Can you talk about like how much maybe that would have cost when you're testing this thing out, where you're taking it out, trying different things on a other kayak, and then you're like, hey, let's try one like this? Again, when you don't
1: have a lot of resources, you can be pretty creative. And without going into details, because there are quite a few trade secrets around it, we just developed ways of rapidly prototyping these different hull shapes and then measuring. You know, we can measure stability, we can measure speed, we can measure tracking, we can measure wind sensitivity, current sensitivity so we did but we did all of that on a budget it was a lot of work a lot of hours a lot of trying this and trying that but we sink in a bunch of of money into r&d as far as manufacturing we, we actually set up a manufacturing plant down in greenville south carolina so we've been in that building for a couple of months now we've got our oven these things are made in these giant rotomolding molding ovens we've got our oven installed the show boats that we took out that were taken out to the trade shows are from prototype molds you only get about 10 or 15 boats out of a mold but you know we we wrote wrote roto molded those in our own factory we're in the process now of getting what's called a foundry mold it's a it's the aluminum production tool getting that made and we start shipping in december did you have to bring in like outside funding or anything to
0: be able to do this or this is all money from your other company as well
1: i tried (laughs) you know but you know people doesn't matter how success successful you've been in other endeavors you know when it comes to raising capital um you know it can be difficult and th- there were people that i think we could have gotten an investment from but with what, what they wanted in return was not it was it. just too much. <laughs> right. it just yeah, it it wasn't worth it. So at the end of the day, we ended up securing an SBA loan, and and that's that's a reason to get it off the ground. And you know, I'd say even that is not as much as it would typically take to do something like this, because you know we're just smart about how we spend our money. We're not afraid of a little bit of sweat equity to just, you know, work hard and get in there and, and get things done. We shopped well for equipment. We actually, I mean, this giant oven, I, I'd say these big ovens probably come on the used market once every three or four years. And one just fell out of the sky right into our lap, right at the right time. So it, we're doing this, Probably not, not on the same shoestring budget that we started Yak Attack, but the same thing is being conscious of how you spend your money. Treating every dollar as though it's it's your last one is is really important, especially when they're borrowed dollars. You know, I'll, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I see a lot of entrepreneurs go out there, raise this money, and then spend it like Monopoly money. With uh, oh yeah, there's but, but I've got a business plan, right? I got to so throw it over here and throw it over there, and before you know it, where the rubber meets the road, you know, closing the sale service in the sale, making sure the quality is right, making sure delivery dates are met, fall short on a couple of those things. And all that money that was spent is just squandered. So we want to be able to do things like pay employees well. You know, we're very yeah, I'm a, I'm a anybody that knows me knows I'm extremely conservative individual in pretty much every way. But unlike a lot of which you typically think of with conservatives, I'm also very socially conscious. I know manufacturing was pivotal for my career and you know, my life and quality of life and my family's quality of life. So there's a lot of purpose behind what we do. So You know, if we're going to spend money, we'd like to spend it on something that creates something for someone or produces something for someone or betters the world or or the community or, you know, employees or whatever, not just slinging it around with no respect for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, there's a perception of money and I think everyone's perception is different, but the best way that I can describe my perception is, and it's the way I've, I've taught my kids, money is like fueling the gas tank. You probably aren't driving down the road thinking about how much fuel you have in the tank. You know, you're not like, heck yeah, man, I got a full tank. When you're, you've, you've got to have enough. You've got to have what you need. You want to have, you want to have enough that you don't have to worry about it. You know, you tend to think about it the most when you're almost out. But if your journey is worth taking, you're probably thinking about where you're, you're going. Probably thinking about the other people on the road and the passengers in the car. You know, there's other things that are much more important than the fuel in the tank. The fuel is there to serve a purpose, not to be served. And that's the way that we, I'd say that's the way that we look at those kinds of things. So we have a healthy respect for it. We need it. It is definitely the fuel. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, Do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I would just say, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not?
0: I think that's a great quote there at the end. And thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Is there any other last words of wisdom that you want to leave the audience? And what might be the best way for someone to contact you if they want to say thanks?
1: The best way to contact me is just an email, uh, luther at yakitech.us. I get probably a couple of times a month, I get someone call asking for entrepreneurial advice. Always happy to do that as, as time allows. But the biggest advice I think I could give anyone in the, the advice that I most often give when they ask me about starting a new business is it's probably going to be the level of effort is probably more than you can currently imagine to do, to start a business. But the level of difficulty that your ability to solve the equation, your ability to make it successful, it's probably not as hard as you think. You know, you have to work harder than you think, but the, you don't have, like the stars don't have to line up. You just have to work hard. You have to take care of people from day one, respect relationships, whether it's with your employees, whether it's with your customers or with your vendors. You know, one of our philosophies is we treat our vendors just like we treat our customers. And you do those things, work really hard, be honest with yourself about the opportunity. You know, if it's not panning out, Might be time to start looking somewhere else. You know, I hear people that say success is a series of many failures. You know, I, I view that a little bit differently. I say that success is something you adjudicate at the end. So you don't determine if it's success or failure till you get to the end. So if you have to back up a few steps to go forward again, do that. You know, don't be afraid to do that. But more than anything, be persistent. You know, be willing to work harder than anyone else and respect your resources so you don't run out of fuel. All right. Well,
0: thank you, Luther, for coming on and sharing your story with us.
1: Thanks, Austin. I appreciate it.
0: Guess what, Patreon members? I got our next five group calls already lined up for you. We got Jonathan Cogley from episode 85, taking your questions on how to find other entrepreneurs to partner with. Then we got Aviv Shogli for you, who's an entrepreneur from Israel. He's already had two successful business exits, and his interview is really inspiring. Next, we got Lisa Wise from episode 37, where she'll tell you exactly how she grew her real estate management company from the ground up and how you can too. Next, we got Ron Holt from episode 197, telling you how he grew two maids in a mop, not to be confused with two girls and one cup. And he basically grew his single location cleaning business to now a franchise model that covers 81 markets in the U.S. And he'll tell you how you can do the exact same thing, And last but not least, and by popular demand, we have Doug Smith from episode 182, which might have been our most open interview of all time. Well, anyhow, I hope you join us on these calls. I only invite my favorite guests back to do these group calls, and we try to have a good time while also getting your business questions answered. Plus, if you ever miss a call, we've got a back catalog of every group call. So if you're tired of, I don't know, being a passive pussy, then come join us. I mean... Are you just going to keep listening to this podcast and not do anything? Or are you going to be proactive and get in the game? Well, hopefully it's the latter because it helps you and me. And if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member and you're not already, then go visit our website at millionaire-interviews.com and sign up today where you'll get instant access to all past group calls plus our special Patreon episodes. So... Hopefully you join us on the group call and become a member today.